It's a little bit like asking the first person you ever date to marry you, right? It's not that that's definitely a mistake and will never work out, but it's risky. This is really what happens when you commit to doing integrations in the storage layer. It's committing really upfront once for all how things are. And then when things aren't that way, that's why you have to rerun the jobs and make the copies, right? Because you've you've decided, you've kind of foreclosed all the possibilities really aggressively. A data set might seem objective, a hard, fixed, immutable thing that represents the world exactly as it is. The reality is that most data is the result of a series of human choices. Which data to collect, which data to transform, which data to summarize or aggregate, and which data to count. Every one of these choices is a modeling decision. Every one of these transformations is a human choice, a choice to decide what to measure and what's unimportant. So what happens when an analyst has a new idea about how to organize and understand data? They have to start from scratch. They have to recreate a new version of the data, a new data set. And then they have to go through the process of remodeling, retransforming, and resummarizing the data all over again. But what if they didn't have to? What if we could make data modeling far more flexible? Kendall asked himself this question, and it led him to founding Stardog, an enterprise knowledge graph platform. Kendall is a true data radical. In addition to founding Stardog, he has a PhD in the philosophy of religion. He was also CEO of Complexible and the managing editor of XML.com. So today, we'll talk about data transformation, we'll talk about knowledge graphs, and we'll learn when and how they ought to be used, as well as which use cases and users will leverage them. So even though the terrain may be a bit technical, Kendall and I break all of this down. His background and knowledge make for a really fun conversation. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Kendall Clark, founder and CEO of Stardog. In this episode, he and Satyan discuss knowledge graphs, their use applications, the relationship between philosophy and management, and so much more. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Our platform makes data easy to find, understand, use, and govern. So analysts are confident they're using the best data to build reports the C-suite can trust. The best part? Data governance is woven into the interface, so it becomes part of the way you work with data. Learn more about Alation at A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Kendall is what former guest David Epstein would call a generalist. Like me, Kendall and I came to the software industry from a non-traditional path. I asked him to describe his journey. I think I have an unusual background. I'm not sure how distinguished it is. It's a little bit of a strange path to being a startup guy. I've still never had a computer science class, so I'm self-taught in computer science, which is a little bit strange. But I did um, bachelor's, master's, and PhD in philosophy of religion, and philosophy generally, but philosophy of religion specifically for my PhD. And uh, I mean, I guess one of the things to say about that kind of inquiry, that sort of discipline is you end up getting comfortable with rules and rule-like systems and with philosophical arguments or sort of algorithms in a kind of over a weird domain. So that when I realized about 80% of the way through my PhD that I actually was not going to be an academic, that the academic world was not for me, I needed another thing to do effectively. So this is not distinguished. This is not interesting. This is just real world stuff, right? Like, hey, I got to pay my bills. 
right? I need a career. And I was like 26, 27. And the philosophy of religion wasn't, there was no job. I guess there was no non-academic job or job that you wanted. That's right. Like if you don't do academia as a philosopher, you pretty much don't do philosophy formally. There's no other place to do it really. I mean, I guess Google hires a few ethicists from time to time to like, and, and actually uh, it does occur to me now that one of my buddies is VP of ethical AI data robot. So that's a thing you can do if you, I study moral philosophy, ethics, philosophy, religion. So that was a thing I could have done, but I'm, all these people who do this now are 15 years younger than me. So I was just, no one was doing this in the late nineties. So I discovered the internet, the web, Linux, Unix, and then Linux all basically in the, in like March, April of 1995. And I was finishing my PhD in religious studies and philosophy religion. And I just fell down this rabbit hole of, I can have a workstation on my old PC if I download enough, if I get in a floppy disk and download Slackware and it takes six weeks. And, and I just fell into this world. And I thought, okay, this is something I can do. I remember my first IT job. I was building, uh, we were building web apps. I was working in Dallas and we built a, an internal portal for a large California home manufacturer, really, you know, big, big national brand home manufacturer, home builder. And it was my first exposure to enterprise IT. So this is like 97, 98. And I was astonished to learn that large companies inside of a large company, there wasn't just one big data source. I just assumed quite naively, right? I knew a lot about computer science. I didn't know that much about enterprise IT. I just assumed all the data of a company was in one place because it just made sense to me to assume that. And, and so you can imagine how profoundly shocked I was to learn no, in fact, it's the exact opposite of that. The data is in many, many places typically. And in some sense, Stardog still kind of works on that problem. So really the first big problem I encountered in IT is the one that stuck with me. So I guess you can say I'm nothing if not stubborn. But yeah, so I got, I really came to data by observing that in the real world data is its sort of natural state is disconnected. And that disconnectedness is a challenge for everything else an organization wants to do with that data. And that stubbornness is what led Kendall to found Stardog years later. I asked him to describe the organization and its mission. We call Stardog an enterprise knowledge graph platform. You know, it's a back office technology. We started very simply. There's a user interface for implementation, but it's really, it exists sort of in some ways kind of deep in the data and analytics infrastructure stack. It really sits between the sort of presentation layer or the business logic layer, the, that's the layer where things get done, reports get written, people consume data, people make decisions, people generate new insight. And then below that is the wild west world of the data, which is always a bit of a, a mess. Like a company like Startup could only really exist in an era of effectively infinite computing power, which is relatively new for the human race. But we had a lot of storage as a civilization much, much sooner than that, right? So this is, this is what motivates. We've always integrated data by moving it and copying it because it was really the only, it was the only choice we had, right? So it's not that people were dumb. People were not dumb. They were constrained, right? So it's the smart, best choice you can make if it's the only choice you can make. And for a long time, it was the only choice. And so the alternative for us is to say, well, rather than integrating data at the storage layer, what if we integrated data at the computation layer? entropy has happened always to data. And what people want is a means to have that data connected so that they can effectively do their jobs, get the insight, you know, win the prize, whatever, whatever they're about. And the point of Stardog as a software system is really to let its users query, 
search, maybe train a machine learning model, do some data quality, a variety of services one might want to do with data to accomplish some end, to provide a mechanism for those services to be accomplished without the data having to be moved or copied anywhere. So, you know, like we, we just take very seriously the fact that all the data that a, say, an enterprise possesses has a kind of natural resting place. It lives somewhere. And rather than thinking about moving the data into a new place in order to process it, we could just build software systems that process that data where it lives and save a bunch of time, save a bunch of heartache, save a bunch of upset, and and in the end, get the answers and the insights we want faster. A lot of people talk about knowledge graphs. I think it's a term that's been widely discussed, widely used. I hear it all the time more and more. Mm-hmm. To help educate the audience, what, what is a knowledge graph? Like, what does that mean? A knowledge graph can mean both a collection of facts that constitute some knowledge or some data about a domain, about about some part of the world, something that people care about. And it can also mean a software platform or software system that manages or queries or assembles or, you know, processes in some ways that collection. The thing to say about a knowledge graph is that it's a graph, which means it has a particular data model. It's a very simple data model. And it's you typically talk about really like three things in a graph data model. You have things that are called nodes or entities, which are often just, you know, depicted as circles. And that like in a graph database, database about your podcast series, you know, you would be a node, you would be the host node, I would now be a guest node. Right. And then there will be an arrow or a link, a line, sometimes what's called an edge between these two nodes. And that would depict or or represent the relationship we have. Like you hosted a podcast on which I appeared. So, you know, if somebody says, do Kendall and Sachi know each other, sent that query to a graph database about your podcast, it would say, yes, they know each other in this precise way. They know each other in the what host, guest, interviewer, interviewee, however you, you know, want to think about it, relationship. Now, a knowledge graph is expected to be at a higher level of abstraction than raw data facts, right? And it's supposed to include things like logical theories, axioms, rules, other kind of constructs that make, that let you make a semantic interpretation of the data, which is to say much more like the theories that we carry around in our head as people. Right, rather than just a raw collection of, of data bits. So a knowledge graph has a, often it should have a richer, more expressive, and here I mean in the technical sense, a computationally more powerful data model and data language to express much more complex relationships than, say, a relational database. Right, A relational database is, a, again, a lovely bit of software and an incredible a sort of a, a very dense collection of human ingenuity for 50, 75 years. But its data model is relatively inexpressive, right? You can really only express a few basic relationships between the parts of a relational database. Whereas in a knowledge graph, you have effectively some fragments or full-on first-order logic. Fair to say that in a graph, you can model, I think you use the word more sophisticated more rich relationships between the nodes, between the nouns, between the things. That's right. And you can also represent logic. That's right. Right? So you can say, Satyan on the podcast by himself, talking to himself as both a host and a guest. Correct. And that would be to say that 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 relation can be reflexive. 
right? So logical reflexivity means you can have that relationship with yourself. Where you couldn't do that, for example, in a, in a, in a, in a relational database. You can do that in a relational database if the people programming the relational database, not the vendor, but the user, wants to write a bunch of code to interpret some arrangement of the rows and columns to mean reflexive, right? You, of course, you can do it. But in a, in a knowledge graph, this just comes for free. It's part of the mechanism, right? There's a much, much richer, and again, richer here doesn't mean like richer like Shakespeare is more rich than, say, Dilbert. It doesn't mean richness in that poetic kind of human emotional meaningfulness. It means rich here means, you know, it's strictly like one computer language is more powerful than another because it can represent everything that the less powerful language can represent. And it can represent things that the less powerful language cannot represent. Right. So you can strictly speaking, just compute more in, say, a Turing complete language than a language that isn't Turing complete. The consequence of that is you can ask more sophisticated questions that are closer to how people actually think. Yes, that's exactly right. An analogy that everyone who listens to this will certainly understand is like, think about how you tell your friend over the phone to manipulate a spreadsheet. It's very procedural. You say like, hey, the last column is where I put our social security numbers. So you should stick another column between that one and the penultimate one, and we'll put the date, we'll put the the update date, right, in that column. Like, we talk about it very physically in terms of the layout, right, you know, where the data is. But then to continue the spreadsheet analogy, there's another part of how we interact with spreadsheets, one thing that makes spreadsheets quite wonderful tools, that's purely declarative, right? We just sort of say somewhere in a cell, here's a formula for computing interest rate, right? Or, or, or the, the net present value of cash. It's just in this cell. And no matter what else happens in the spreadsheet, as long as the data is somewhere, that thing will produce the right value. And it just always does it, right? A spreadsheet just always has the values that the cells compute. It's very, a spreadsheet is both declarative and procedural in that way, right? So the other implication of using a, a, more, a richer data model to describe your data is precisely that people can sort of trade in what people are good at, which are these high-level, what's typically called declarative descriptions of how they want the world to be. And then again, just like let the computer figure it out, right? So as you said, like we might write a rule that says on this podcast, the relationship between host an interviewer cannot be reflexive. We don't want to have any cases where Sachin's interviewing himself. We definitely I mean, no don't. Offense. No, we definitely no, don't. No, no offense, man, but like, you know, like, uh, th- that just would be a rule. Let's say it's your rule. So we're not imposing this on you. You agree with this. So the so we might say, in fact, the interview's relationship is anti-reflexive. Anti-reflexive is a, a very crisp, well-understood, logical description to say. Now, what that turns into is it may be a data quality parameter. If, if we're trying to do some data integration and someone's made a mistake somewhere, the computer's saying, nope, we can't have that. I know that's wrong. How do you know that's wrong? Well, you told me that this relationship is anti-reflexive. So if we have a podcast, we need at least one guest and we need at least one host, right? Because we have to have two nodes. There have to have been two parties to an interview, two parties to a conversation, right? We don't have solo conversations on data radicals, right? So that's not a... That's not you or your producers saying of some future data you're not even aware of procedurally, no, delete that, that's wrong. That's you saying these are just what the rules are for, for this part of the world, Yeah. right? I mean, the computer applies that and, and good stuff happens. 
Should every software system be built on a knowledge graph? Of course not. Literally construed, no. I mean, software systems have a very wide range of requirements. And in some cases, the data problem isn't really that important. To answer what I think the healthy provocative part of your import of your question was, Gartner thinks, now, you know, I don't believe everything Gartner says, but I think they do think about what the better enterprise IT landscape would look like fairly well and pretty consistently. They've been saying for a couple of years that something similar, which is applications increasingly in the enterprise should be really very user interface and role specific kind of views onto a common pool of enterprise data that sort of just exists somewhere. I think this is a a widely held belief about where the industry should go, that applications are really about human affordances rather than directly manipulating some unique data, right? Such that, you know, like if you, like, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, let's say at the U.S. Postal Service, there are people who work in the back office, right? And they manipulate big systems. They sit at a desk and they're kind of standard what you think of as knowledge workers, right? And then you got the delivery people who are out there dealing with the rain and the sleet and the snow and the dogs and the weather and all that stuff. And it's a hard job. So they have very specialized computers, like little devices that help in that setting. Like in that world, both of those U.S. Postal Service workers share some common pool of Postal Service data. They want to be looking at the same underlying reality that the data represents. But the applications that they use may be very, very different because of the human differences between, you know, carrying a mailbag and being on a busy street and trying to help somebody get a package versus, you know, sitting back at the at the office with a big screen and a big computer and big mug of coffee and you're you're writing some report or some query, right? So so in that sense I do think that enterprises that treat their data as a first class object and really take that seriously get the chance to rethink in a pretty thoroughgoing way what an application means, right? And what you really want from an application and what that looks like. It strikes me that ultimately there's a trade-off between, you know, sort of what's easiest for the user to use and then how much flexibility they want in the system and how much they want to learn the technology and the like. What I think you're basically saying is, look, there's a set of cases where you don't necessarily know what you don't know. And there's a lot of implied flexibility that's required because, to your point, to get to that level of user usability and customization, you have to divine what you may not know a priori when you're designing the system. And those are great cases for when a knowledge graph could be useful. Do you feel it's fair or right? I think that's right. I think flexibility, the need for flexibility arises in many different ways. And uncertainty is one of the drivers of the need of agility or flexibility. So uncertainty is one. Just sometimes you can just be, I'm absolutely certain that my requirements are going to change a lot and very rapidly, right? So it's not so much, un- but with, let's say, within a range that I can predict with high, cer- with, with high certainty. So it's not that I have certainty, I just have pressure, right? I, th- the business moves fast. So I think that's another case. Like the other thing, the other thing that we've seen where we, we do particularly well in what are called regulated industries, the paranoid industries, right? I didn't quite understand that for a while, but I finally realized that the other advantage to a knowledge graph over as, a, as an integration mechanism, as opposed to say a relational model, is knowledge graphs really do promote a very, an extraordinarily high degree of reusability. So 
it's just always the case that a knowledge graph gets extended by getting more nodes and edges added to it. Customers never just throw it away and start over from scratch. And I still really never seen a relational database effort start with by people saying, hey, we've got to make this new application. We're going to use a relational backend. Let's use the schema that we use for that other thing before and start there. Nope. It's always a fresh page from scratch, uh, new data modeling effort every time. So I think relational systems have a very low degree of schema reusability, which, you know, in, in absent, absent any other specification, who cares, frankly, it doesn't really matter. But in regulated industries, it's super important to get it right. Because you're going to have to, you know, uh, you're gonna have to stand tall before the man and account for yourself. That's what a regulated industry is. So one of the reasons I think knowledge graph technology see more uptake there is exactly the reusability. Like when you really have to get it right, once you've got it right, you don't want to mess around with it anymore. You just kind of want to like this is the opposite of flexibility, uncertainty, right? This is the sense. This is certainty that comes from, hey, we finally figured out how to model those derivative cr credit default swaps and it's correct and the regulators are happy and we haven't crashed the economy and we're making money and just leave it, right? Like, don't start over. If you do have to do it again, that just introduces the risk that we may get it wrong. It, it informs how you manage data, how you think about data, how you build human processes, you know, all that stuff. And, and this is the sense in which I published a piece last year that said something like, not only is data management not finished, it's far more strategic than anyone ever imagined, right? Because we tend to think of data management ho-hum, it's ETL jobs. It's just plumbing its infrastructure. Yeah, I think that's really, I think events have proven that to be quite false. It really is quite strategic because it's a, it's a significant limiting factor to the questions you can ask and answer of the data. And ultimately, that's a significant limiting factor to what you can do as a business. In our founding story, the way I started thinking about and coming to the problem of solving elation got me down this sort of, I wouldn't call it a rat hole is a pejorative and it sounds really bad, but it got me down a inquiry path of looking at semantic layers and thinking about knowledge graphs and ontologies and Sparkle as an example. And it's funny because I met my co-founder who at the time was, you know, Google engineer and then resigned and told him, well, aren't we going imp to implement this on an ontology and in a graph database? And he's like, yeah, we're not going to do that because uh, we know what the user wants and we know what the questions they're going to ask and we know what they're searching for and we know what the user is going to need. We don't need to like reinvent the wheel every single time. And we don't need massive levels of usability. Like when you're searching for a table, you're going to do the same thing every single time. So a lot of the system right. doesn't need to be built on a knowledge graph. Right. He made, he was making the, what he was saying effectively, you were there, but I'm guessing like we need that, those last few percentages of absolute control and performance and economy of scale rather than any more flexibility. Right. We know that we have different persona types like an analyst or a data scientist, and we can build differences for them, but we don't need like the ultimate level of flexibility because we don't have ultimate uncertainty. We know what the user wants, right? And I think... Sorry to cut you off. I have the same irony. We don't use a knowledge graph internally to manage the sales pipeline of Stardog. Oh, oh the irony, right? Oh, what do you mean? You don't eat your own dog food? No, we run a sales process like everyone else. Salesforce is sufficient. Yeah, and I think it ultimately comes down to what are you ultimately with your software application, with whatever it is that you're trying to do, what are you trying to do, and is a knowledge graph useful? It's funny because when we started this catalog, a lot of people would ask me, well, you know, are you capturing structured or semi-structured or unstructured data in your catalog, and how are you doing search? 
And, you know, the interesting thing, and I think this comes back to sort of that question, because the interesting thing is like any structuring of the data is in some sense an analytical exercise. You're choosing to label what's important, what's not important. Like, you know, there's a photograph. You're choosing to say the shirt's important, but the background color in gray is not necessarily important. And that's part of my data model. So every structuring, whether it's an OLTP application or a, you know, OLAP model in a snowflake, all these things are, you know, I think on some level, somebody's abstracted knowledge out of the world around them and chosen to ignore a whole bunch of things that don't matter in the context of that model. And it does strike me that, you know, this idea of sort of what you're saying is really powerful, which is like, look, you know, all of the structuring that's happening in the integration layer, that's like on some level lost knowledge or, you know, kind of potentially lost knowledge that if we could just like allow the structuring to be itself a lot more flexible could end up then creating unlocking a lot of knowledge because there's more reusability. People can learn and build on top of things that have already been built, but they can also explore things that have not already been built. And so it just gives you a wider palette on, palette on which to paint, the ability to ask more complicated questions. And you know that could be a very powerful way of approaching the world. That seems really cool as an idea. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's a little bit like asking the first person you ever date to marry you, right? It's not that that's definitely a mistake and will never work out, but it's risky, right? You've taken on some, this kind of what, what you know, we, we often call in large scale systems, early versus late binding. Like when, how long can you defer or delay before you have to give the final answer, right? So, so maybe if you go on a lot of dates and you experience more of what it's like to be in relationships, you can make a better choice. Like, you know, why be in a hurry, right? And the approach... So, so this is this is this is really what happens when you commit to doing integrations in the storage layer. It's committing really upfront, once for all, how things are, and then when things aren't that way, that's why you have to rerun the jobs and make the copies, right? Because you've you've decided you've kind of foreclosed all the possibilities really aggressively, right? You've said I I don't want to take time, I don't want to defer searching this complex space to be adapt more flexible for what happened next. It's just like this because that's the way it seems to me, which is, you know, often true. Every schema is a choice that reflects human values and priorities and, and understanding. Like just, and it's just, there's no way around it. That's just what it means. We impose this meaning and order on otherwise what is just meaningless, like data. And our argument all along has been like, look, it's not that you should get rid of Snowflake. This is a net new capability that lets you relate data no matter where it is to the data that's that that's anywhere else based on what it means and then you can query it and that has a lot of value for your organization but it has value in the context of everything else you're doing right now maybe yes it will help you save some money uh, it will help you uh, you know be more agile more flexible these are good things we can capture these in terms of value there's ROI but it's not a knowledge graph or anything else you can only choose one kind of situation to close out our conversation, I asked Kendall to describe how his experience has influenced the culture he has built at Stardog. With respect to like the internal culture of Stardog, I think it's for me been much more informed by my early career as a philosopher. So in particular, and some of the values we talk about as part of the Stardog family includes things like practice charity, right? And I always have to explain this one because typically when a corporate executive says practice charity, they mean do philanthropy. And I also mean that, but that's not what I mean by practicing charity. By practicing charity, I mean practice moral and epistemic charity, 
which is to say, when you're talking to someone, when you're trying to work with someone to discover the truth, to try to discover the way forward, to try to discover, you know, even a dirty revenue hack that you need to put into place just for a quarter, you're trying to accomplish some end, you need to always be construing what the other the other person's position in the most charitable possible light. Like, you know, here, here we're having a conversation. And one of the things that makes this conversation go better rather than worse is that, you know, I've misspoken a few times because I'm a person and I didn't say precisely what I meant. But you always came back with like this interpretation of what I meant that, you know, put me in a good light. You assumed the best. Right now, you could have done otherwise. It's always very frustrating when you find yourself, you're talking to somebody and everything you say, they're putting the worst possible spin on it. Now, they're not practicing charity. They're not being generous in, in how they're resolving the uncertainty of the act of interpreting another person's words. What did he mean by that? Well, I can see he could have meant this good thing. He could have meant a thing that really makes him quite a nasty person. That's a free choice I can make. And so one of the things I learned from being a philosopher, and this is not necessarily philosopher's reputation, but it's what the actual work of philosophy is. That, you know, when you're, when you're working, let's say, with your professor on your thesis, or on, you know, with maybe your department mate on some paper, some argument of a paper, you get to the, everybody gets to the truth faster, right? It's a more efficient, more effective, more goal-directed process for everybody to be sort of construing what everyone else says in a very positive light. And I find that that is not just a a philosophical virtue. It's a virtue of just good, decent, humane people. And I think of systems, human systems like a startup that are effective, that are joyous, that are, you know, supporting of people's both individual aspirations, talents and goals, as well as the shared aggregate talents or or goals of the organization. Like, it's just a good way to be, right? And it applies to a lot of life. Like, you know, we're, we're often faced in the mystery of the other person's behavior with some with some choices about how we construe what they've done. You know, what were they trying to get at? And the people who sort of are very pessimistic and uncharitable, and they're just not fun to be with because no matter how talented those people are, people who are in, have a high cost of interpersonal relations are never worth their skills, their ability as salespeople or engineers or, or CEOs for that matter because that kind of tax on interpersonal, on human-to-human interactions, it's a pernicious tax, right? And it's systematic and it sort of spoils everything. It's not limited to individual interactions. Well, Kendall, just a phenomenal conversation. And just like the the range has been super cool. So it's been fun to fun to have it and uh, glad to meet you. And, and, you know, I think glad for our listeners to be able to hear about all these topics that sound very complicated, but I think that you've done an amazing job to help simplify. So thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And we look forward to having you on at some point in the future. I'll just say, um, you know, who says you can't teach old dogs new tricks? You're a former economist. I'm a former philosopher. Everybody always says it's the second act of American life that distinguishes Americans <laughs> from, uh, I think this was in the Ga- Greg Gatsby or something. I'm butchering the quote, but yeah, I very much think of myself in that way. So it's always good to meet people who, uh, who didn't do computer science as undergraduates and find themselves running software companies. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, there, we'll, we'll try to expand that, that cool club. I'm not sure how big it is, but we'll find them. It doesn't have to be big to be cool. I agree with you. In business, as in life, the only constant is change. Data can help us adapt to change and help us seize new opportunities. 
So if you take nothing else away from this episode, remember that if our systems are rigid, moving quickly becomes impossible. Kendall's insights reflect why in many situations, a flexible design for data can be so valuable. Thank you to Kendall for joining us for this episode of Data Radicals. This is Satyan Sangani, co-founder and CEO of Alation. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Is your organization ready for its next compliance audit? Data governance can help you pass that audit while also supporting innovation, accelerating analytics, and mitigating risk. Read this evaluation of 12 data governance solutions at alation.com slash DGQ3. That's alation with an A dot com slash DGQ3.